Hey, good morning, church. I am happy to be able to teach this morning out of John chapter 13. Um, John 13, and then for the next five chapters, uh, there's just a lot of red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, there's a, there's a, a lot of um, the words of Jesus here that are, that are only in the Gospel of John. This section of scripture that we're coming to is called the Upper Room Discourse. And of course, we'll be studying this for the next several months. Um, and the, the Upper Room Discourse, for five chapters, is Jesus speaking to his closest friends, to his disciples. And it is one of the most remarkable parts of scripture that, that we get. It feels like a gift to read these chapters. Uh, one uh, commentator, pastor, Alexander McLaren, he wrote on this section, he says, nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so revealed, so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led up is his most perfect self-revelation in act. So, of course, we see God and the love of God most clearly on the cross, but in, in a similar way, we, we hear the love of God most clearly in what Jesus says in these passages. Um, and then we, we also see his, his actions um, foreshadowing the cross, and that's what we have um, to study today. We, we come to the section of scripture where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. So, I'm going to read you this passage I'm going to read from John chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through verse 17. Um, and if, if you can, if, you, if you'd like, um, I always say, you know, read along in your Bible. Um, you should have your Bible open and then read along and, and uh, so you know where to find it next time. Um, but also, as you read or as you listen to me read it, um, put yourself in the room. Put yourself in the room where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, which I hope you are, then realize that you're in line for this kind of washing. Jesus is coming to wash your feet. Um, don't be surprised if you react uh, a little bit like Peter, perhaps. But let's, let's go to the text here. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed, the, washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? 
you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Jesus, we know a little. Um, we know in part um, that you offer the blessing to those who do what they know. And so, God, I ask uh, for understanding uh, of this passage, for, for your church, for myself. I, I, I pray for a, a blessing to be able to communicate clearly so that we can know what this says. But more than that, God, I pray for a quickening of your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of your church, of the people in your church, so that we can receive the blessing that comes to the people that do what they know. Help us love like this. God, you have loved us greatly, and we love because you first loved us. But help us, God, live like you lived and love like you love. Jesus, bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Um, so you, you see the, the first section here, the first six verses maybe, it, it, it sounds like John. You know, in, in John chapter 1, is this deep theology and kind of poetic language. It doesn't sound like the other gospel so much. And, and we're, we're back to that. Uh, John is, is, um, is speaking theologically here. But verse 1, uh, verse 1 is a really beautiful verse. And verse 1 here connects the washing of the feet, which begins the upper room discourse, with the cross, which is the, the purpose of the gospel. Um, the, the, the end to where he's going, the cross, and then the empty tomb. So we'll read verse 1 again. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the hour that he's talking about is very clearly the cross. You can glance back at chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then down in verse 27 of chapter 12, it says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, before this purpose I came to this hour. And so now he, he says his hour has come in chapter 13, verse 1. The hour is something that troubles Jesus, but that he knows is also going to glorify Jesus. Um, and and that, that glory of the gospel that is the cross. You know, Romans 1.16 uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And the, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And there's glory in that, but there's, there's something troubling in that as well. The cross is central, and Jesus himself says, my soul is troubled. But now he knows that his hour had come that he should depart from this world. And the, the avenue of departing from this world was through death and then resurrection and the ascension. But he, he, he knows that his hour has come that he would return to the Father. It says, having loved his own. Um, that's, that's the disciples that is talking about. In the next five chapters, as I mentioned, is, is, a, is a conversation that Jesus has with his closest friends, with his disciples. These are his own. And, and we know that, yes, Jesus loves the whole world. He loves everyone. But you know what? He, he loves his own especially. <laughs> There is a different kind of love that he has for his children, all right? And, and seeing that he loved his own, 
and knowing that that's the disciples, but knowing also that you can put yourself in that category of his own is a beautiful and encouraging thing. This is talking about his disciples, his uh, the, the twelve, and it's, this is talking about you. And in uh, David Guzik's commentary, he lists this uh, uh, these reasons why the disciples are really his own, belonging to Jesus. And you've, you've heard me say uh, frequently, you know, that, that we are his by right of creation and redemption. He made you, so you're his. You belong to him. But then Paul says, don't you know that you were purchased with a, by, with a price and you are not your own? So he's, you're his by right of creation and redemption. Uh, but in David Guzik's commentary, he says they were his own because he chose them. And he makes that clear. You didn't choose me. I chose you. They were his own because he gave himself to them. They were his own because his father gave them to him. They were his own because he would soon purchase them. They were his own because he conquered them. They were his own because they yielded themselves to him. And you are his for these reasons and many more. Um, but you should rejoice in seeing this, this verse and the deep love of Jesus. Uh, and even this, these two words, his own. You should rejoice in this, in this sense of belonging. Where the presence of Jesus, being in the arms of Jesus, being in, in possession, or Jesus being in possession of you. That, that's not something outside your home. That, that's not something that, that, that not, not a place where you should be uncomfortable. Um, this is where you belong. You belong with Jesus because you're his own. And he says he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now there's two meanings really, two. And, and you know that John likes double meanings. He likes texture and subtleties and layers, you know. Um, to the end. The first meaning is just time. You know, he, he isn't done loving them. He loved them all the way to the end. He never fired them. He never cut them off, said, okay, I loved you enough and we're done now. He loved them to the end of his life. And then the Acts of the Apostles and church history tell us that he loved them even beyond that to the end of their lives. And you can gain uh, a bit of encouragement from this too, because you know that Jesus isn't done loving you. He's not finished showing you his love. He has more of his love to express to you because he loves to the end. And it's not the end yet. <laughs> the fat lady hasn't sung. Okay, it's not the end. And Jesus loves all the way to the end. Read the book of Revelation. Read the, the prophecies of the end, the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. And you see that his love never ends. It never gives up. It never runs out. He loves to the end. So this could mean just a, a sequence. You know, he, he, he began loving and he's not done till, there's, till the end. Um, but the, the second really meaning of this, and it's translated this in some Bibles, it says he loved them uh, to the uttermost. Uh, and this, this really means that he loved them to the fullest extent of love. Um, the Greek word here is telos. Uh, if you're into apologetics, you're familiar with the teleological argument for, for a creator, which means it seems that the universe was created with a purpose, and if, there, if there's a purpose and an end, someone did it on purpose, and that person is, is God, something like that. This word telos is used by Aristotle to refer to a thing's ultimate purpose. 
and Jesus loved on purpose. And there was an ultimate purpose to his love, and he loved all the way to that end, to that fullest extent of love. His love, which is perfectly displayed on the cross, is made known also in this, this foot washing. Um, Aristotle, again, he says the telos, the telos, the end, the purpose, is the, the telos of a thing is that which it was made for. That which it was made for. Jesus loves you with a purpose. He loves you towards your purpose. He loves perfectly, completely, uh, to the end, to the fullest extent. That's how he loves. Um, now in verse 2 it says, supper being ended, and that's not a great translation unfortunately, could mean in progress. Uh, we know from verse 26, if you just scan forward in chapter 13, that they're not done eating. Um, you know, they're, they're still kind of snacking on bread and, and dip there. Uh, and so it, it, dinner being in progress is probably a better translation here. Um, uh, but several courses, they've eaten some things, and then they're just going to take a pause, and Jesus is going to wash their feet, and then they're going to go back to the table. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Judas is mentioned here, uh, verse 2, and supper being ended, or, or in progress, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Let's read verse 5 as well. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Um, Judas is mentioned intentionally here. Judas is mentioned here on purpose. Why? Because verses 2 through 5 is a picture of all incarnational theology. Um, it's, a, it's a visual aid, a, a, an acting out of a greater truth of Christ who is God descending from heaven for the sake of a dirty-footed people. And, and, and as this is a picture of all incarnational theology, that includes serving your enemies. You know, verse 3 tells you what John is doing. Verse, uh, read verse 3 again. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going to God. So you have that, that direction. Jesus, in heaven, descending to earth for a purpose. He loves to the end, to the, to the telos, to the ultimate purpose, to the, the fullest extent. And while he is there, he knows that that's temporary, and he is now returning to the Father. So you have this, this direction here, this sequence. And John is saying, because he knew that, he knew that he had come from heaven. He knew that he was now on his last days on earth. He knew that he was returning from heaven. He then acts that out physically in this action of foot washing, and even washing the feet of his enemies. In verse 4, it says, he rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. Verse 5, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Um, Jesus rose from supper, okay? So it mentions that they were reclining at table. So there's this place, this position of comfort, of rest, of, 
of ease. And Jesus got up from that and went to the place of a servant. Now we know that that's, this isn't the only time that Jesus left a comfortable and secure place of rest and comfort and descended uh, to a place of service. Jesus rose from his throne in heaven and came to earth. It says Jesus laid aside his garments, taking off his, you know, the, uh, his, his covering, essentially, and then put on the work of a servant. Now, Jesus, um, in, uh, where, where's the passage? 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, He was rich, but for our sake was made poor. You know, he, he took off the glories of heaven. He removed from himself the glories of heaven to come and be a servant. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, probably the most famous passage concerning, you know, the emptying of Jesus. It says, you know, he was in the form of God, but he took on the form of a bondservant. And that's what we see here. He, he girded himself with a towel. He took a towel and girded himself, being ready for work. Okay? He took on the form, not just of man, but of a bond servant, of a slave. And he came ready to work. And then he pours water into a basin. And John is mentioning all these very specific details. You know, I mean, he could have just said, and then he washed their feet. You know, but he doesn't. He mentions him removing the glory of clothing, putting on a towel around his waist, a slave's uniform. Uh, he mentions him pouring water into a, uh, a vessel. And, and you see, he poured water into the basin. He's ready to clean. Jesus removed the, the, the glories of heaven from him, his person, took on the form of a servant, and then came and ready to work, ready to clean. Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin. And then afterwards, in, in verse 12, which we're not, we're not really there yet, it says, he, he, after he washed their feet, taking his garments, he sat down again. And, and we know that after Jesus accomplished the incarnation, the humility, and that cleansing, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So th this whole passage is the visual aid of what it means to be Jesus. It's, it's uh, though he was rich, he became for, poor. Though he was uh, in the form of God, he took on the form of a bondservant. He rose from heaven. He laid aside his glory. He took a towel. And this, we see this extreme humility that is perfectly descriptive of the incarnation of God being made flesh. John's doctrine here in the Gospel of John. Now it's it, it, this foot washing takes on a bit of um, a bit more uh, color uh, if you compare it with the Synoptic Gospels. And in Luke twenty two twenty three, you read that before this happened, the disciples were actually having an argument right there at dinner. They were having an argument about the thing that they argue about most, which is who's the best. They were argue, arguing among themselves about who was the greatest, and that's when Jesus gets up and takes off his garment, wraps a towel around his waist, pours the water into a bowl, and starts going around 12, with these 12 men and washing their feet. Extreme humility. And in verse 5, it says, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That's it's each of the disciples 
And remember, only one disciple so far has been mentioned by name. Um, that's Judas. And I think Judas is notable, but, but remember, all of them scattered. Uh, Peter denies him three times. These are weak and broken men. And Jesus goes and washes their feet. And, and part of, not just part of, but the, the central thrust of the incarnation is not God becoming humble to save a worthy race, to save a great people, uh, to, to save virtuous and noble men of character. No, he, he, he came down to wash Judas's feet. He came down to watch Peter's feet. He came down to wa wash the feet of people who won't pray for him when he asks. They'd rather sleep. He washes their feet. Uh, for the people that, that don't stand by him when he's wrongfully accused, wrongfully arrested, he goes to wash their feet. Now, I asked you at the beginning to picture yourself in this position of Jesus coming to wash your feet, and you are aware of the things that you need to be washed of. But you have to be aware also that Jesus came to your sin, to your filthiness, to your dirty feet, and he came in, in, in this extreme humility in order to encounter you in that position, the sin and the filth and the dirtiness. Now, verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter. So he's been washing people's feet. And I don't know what number Peter was in the list, uh, but he wasn't first. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? <laughs> Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now but you will know after this. Um, sidebar here, not so much an explanation of this narrative, but something that you should probably consider. Uh, memorize verse 7. Uh, this is Jesus' word to a person um, that often reminds us of ourselves, Peter. Okay, More than any of the disciples, you hear people say, I like Peter because he's the real thing. You know, he reminds me of myself. I make dumb mistakes like Peter makes dumb mistakes. Okay, well, if you, have, if you see a kindred spirit in the Apostle Peter, then take verse 7 for what it's worth and be reminded of this truth. Uh, Jesus would say this to you. What I am doing, you do not understand now but you will know after this. Now, does that not resonate with your heart? Does that not seem applicable to so many parts of, of your life, so many areas uh, in your life and moments in your testimony where Jesus could have said to you, you do not get it. And you look back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you're like, yeah, I, I definitely did not get it. You are, Jesus, you speak the truth. I did not understand. But he says, but you will know after this. He doesn't explain right now. He says, you don't need to know why I'm doing this right now, but I'm going to explain it later. Peter's not willing to do that. Verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, Peter's great for us for a number of reasons, but one of them is he's a great example of don't do that. Okay? And, and Peter says, 
no, I, you say I'll understand later. I'm not waiting for later. This doesn't make sense to me now. I am rejecting this. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's embarrassing, Jesus. Keep reading. Uh, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Um, now, just consider Peter here. Because again, we, we have a lot in common with this guy. Consider Peter. It can be hard to receive a blessing. It can be awkward. It can be embarrassing. Um, you know, it can, it can be difficult for us to just say, thank you and leave it at that. You know, it's the same impulse that makes, um, makes a person say, oh, you don't have to do that. Oh, no, 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 no I, I've got it. You don't need to take the check. I, I know, I'll, I'll pay for it. No, I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay. Oh, you don't have to do that. No, I got it, I got it. But it's that times a thousand, and it's awkward for everyone watching. All of the, the other 11 disciples are thinking, what is Peter doing? Just, it's Jesus. Let Jesus do the Jesus thing that he does. Okay, stop it. But he says, no, you don't, you don't have to do this for me. No, no, it's fine. I got it. I got it. Okay, when you do that, everyone around you sees you as the awkward person. Just say thank you. Okay, that's a freebie. That's a little application kind of from the Bible. Um, what we see in Peter and what we see in ourselves and, and those around us, um, not infrequently, is this example of proud humility. Proud humility. Uh, it's, it's a fierce independence and a desire to be able to take care of ourselves. We don't need anyone else. And uh, it can be, and often is, antithetical to the gospel. And Jesus here does not permit Peter to resist. And we say, praise God, and thank you, Jesus, for not permitting me in my pride and my false humility to resist the blessings that you have for me. Now, let me ask you this question. Consider this. Does this idea of Jesus washing feet make you uncomfortable? Um, you're in your chair. You're sitting down. Jesus coming up and taking off his robe, taking one of your towels. Okay? I don't know what condition your towels are in, but not all of mine are new. But taking one of your towels, uh, wrapping it around his waist, going to your sink, and finding a bowl. I mean, already, you're jumping out of your chair, and you're like, no, I got it, I got it, I got it, no, not that one. Oh, I can, I can help you. I can help you. I have something to offer you, Jesus, and I will make your life easier. It already makes you uncomfortable. But can, Jesus finds the bowl, he fills it up with water, he goes to you, and it says, sit down. You're sitting down. He removes your shoes, he unties them, he removes your socks, and he begins to wash your feet. Does that make you uncomfortable? I think, I think it should. Um, I think it's natural that it would. We worship him, right? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. So how do you feel about Jesus kneeling before you? Serving you. There's a really remarkable passage in, in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, 37. Um, I'm going to find it for you. 
Luke 12, 37, Jesus tells a, a parable, but it's very clear who the people, who the characters are in the parable. Um, he talks about faithful servants and unfaithful servants. Um, and and, and he, he tells his disciples, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may be open to him immediately. That they may open to him immediately. This is Luke chapter twelve, verse thirty-seven. Blessed are those servants, whom the master, when he comes, will find washing, watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself, and have them sit down, and will come, and serve them. This seems to be a promise for the servants who are watchful, which we're told to be those servants. We know from Isaiah 25, one of my favorite passages, the Lord himself will prepare for them, the nations, a great feast. In the end, in, in the transition from here to heaven, at this, this supper of the Lamb, this feast, the one who plays the host, the one who serves the guest, is God himself. Luke 12, 37 describes the master telling the servants, no, you sit down. And then he goes and serves them. That's going to be in your future. That awkward feeling of Jesus coming to watch, wash your feet will prepare for it. Prepare for it. Because in real future time and space, Jesus will come to serve you. And I don't think you want to respond with Peter. Now listen, Peter's response is sensible. I can relate. You know, you might say the same thing and you wouldn't be crazy, but you would be wrong. You know, there's, there's more incarnational parallels here. We read in John that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. They didn't understand him. The world is Peter and, that, and must be corrected. The, the hard truth and the beautiful grace of Christianity is that you must let Jesus serve you before you can ever serve him. You must let Jesus wash you before you can even be with him. We must go to him for washing. And, and if, if we feel a little bit like Peter and say, this, this shouldn't be. We feel like John the Baptist. John the Baptist saying, no, 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 you should baptize me. Jesus says, no, 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 all things must be fulfilled. You baptize me. I'll wash your feet. You know, and Peter coming and saying, no, you can't do this. You can't wash my feet. And, you know, it, it's like this attitude of people saying, I, I think I have something to offer. I think if I come to the Lord, uh, join his church, you know, I have giftings. I have, I have uh, abilities and I should come and I, I have something to offer. Now, that's not a bad place to be eventually, but it's a terrible place to start. It's a terrible place to worship from, really. We go to him with nothing to offer except our sin and our dirty feet. Okay, we're Lazarus in the grave. What kind of participation could we possibly have in our resurrection? We go to him for washing. And there's, there's layers to this washing. And a lot of people have, have kind of taken this apart and parsed it and everything like that. But Titus 3.5 says, uh, speaks of the washing of regeneration and the renewing of our minds by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's regeneration. That's being born again. Regeneration. Being born again. That's a washing. We go to him to be saved. 
but we also go to him for sanctification. And Ephesians 5.26 talks about, uh, in, in terms of husbands and wives, and the husbands ought to be washing their wives in the water of the word. Okay, And, and, and in that passage, it's about sanctification and living a holy life. And we go to him for that kind of washing as well. But Jesus says, you don't understand this right now. You don't understand the ministry that I am doing for you and to you right now, but you also cannot reject it. You can't. Because if I don't, if you don't let me do this, you can have no part in me. Part with me. And then Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Um, now this could still be that proud humility. I mean, Peter is kind of a loud mouth. This could be showboating, you know? Oh, wash me so much. Like, dump that thing over my head. I want to be the most washed. You know, at the first he's like, I want to be the only disciple that doesn't get his feet washed. And then Jesus says, no, that would be a bad thing. And then Peter says, well, I want to be the disciple that gets the most washed. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I'm the one who calls the shots, not you. Because even though we might again say, okay, just wash me completely, Lord, do that, do, do everything, wash my, not my feet, but my hands and my head and everything. Peter's still the one trying to call the shots. You know, even though the master is taking on the role of a servant, you still can't tell the master what to do. Um, and Jesus sort of explains this. He says, if, if you've, you've already bathed, like your body is clean, but you walked here, you don't need to take a shower again. Just wash your feet. Like this, this is the custom of the day. This would be normal. Um, and he says, and you know, if you're, you're already clean, but then you got your feet dirty, then just, just wash your feet. You don't need to be made clean all over again. And, but you are clean, but not all of you. And he's talking about Judas. I think there is a distinction here between regeneration and sanctification. Judas is not saved. Okay? As you walk through the world, you get your feet dirty. Um, we mess up. We sin. We, we, get, we get the world on us sometimes. And we return to Jesus for cleansing, for sanctification, for holiness. But you know what you don't need to do every time you sin? Get saved again. Uh, that's that's not the way it works. He says, if you're clean, if you're saved, then you just need to come back and get the the daily filth off of you, okay? And and we do. We we return and confess and we repent and we go for from glory to glory and we we seek holiness and we seek sanctification. And we apologize and receive grace upon grace upon grace, but not if you're not clean. Judas ain't saved, okay? Um, the this distinction here between those who are clean and those who are unclean is specifically mentioning Judas as one who is not clean. He is not bathed. And washing his feet, even though Jesus did that, was essentially like um, cleaning a dead body. Which, you know, people do in preparation for funerals. And uh, there's a place for the church to help people do the right thing or stop doing the wrong thing. Um, but it's not to be confused with regeneration, which is essential. Um, verse 12. I want to read this to you. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again. Now again, all of these details mentioned by John very specifically. Okay, um, He could have just said later on, you know, like Mark does. Uh, Mark just gets straight to the point, you know, let's get down to business. And uh, John says he, he washed their feet, he took his garments, he sat down again, and that's a picture of the ascension. Having cleansed humanity, Jesus gets up, puts on the glory again, and sits down at the right hand of God. And now he says to them, Do you know what I have done 
to you. Uh, I imagine the disciples being speechless at this point. I mean, Peter tried to talk, and as usual, that didn't go well. So I imagine the disciples being kind of speechless here. And then Jesus asks this question, which is such a, a teacher question, such a, a, such a parent question. You know, do you know what I just did? Do you understand what I have just done to you? He's asking questions, teaching with questions. Uh, it's a great thing that Jesus does. He still does. He still relates to us like this. Jesus will ask you questions that aren't for him. They're not so that he can gather information. God has been doing this since the garden. Where are you? Okay? And he's doing it now. And it's not because he needs information. It's because uh, Jesus asks questions because questions make you think of an answer. And he's allowing the disciples to think here. Um, and he, I, think, I think Jesus still asks this if we're willing to listen. Just like he still says, uh, verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. I think there's many times that God could say that to you and I. I think there's many times now, you know, when in the midst of something God is doing in your life, a cleansing that he is doing, where you could ask at the end, do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand how I work now? Did you see my hand in all of this? Do you know why I did it the way I did it? And meditate on this. Do you know what he's done for you? Do you understand how he has cleansed you? How he has humbled himself before you of all people? Do you understand how he washed Judas's feet? Do you understand how he shut Peter down and all his proud humility, false humility? Do you understand that Jesus, the Son of God, took off his clothes, put a towel on, and scrubbed dirt from underneath your toenails? Do you understand what he just did? Do you understand that he's still doing this for sinners like you and me? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He accepts the, their uh, imperfect allegiance. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's good. That's good. Don't stop doing that. He accepts that. And, you know, we, we, we kind of <laughs> roll our eyes and feel a little nervous when we see Peter say things like, no, Lord, and we're like, ah, those two words should not go together. Um, but he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's good. That's fine. You should call me those things. Absolutely. But I'm still going to push you to grow because just calling me teacher and Lord isn't, it really isn't everything. He says, you call me Lord. And they would say, yes, absolutely. You are our Lord. Absolutely. So he says, okay, behave like this then. Behave like me. And he says that to you. You call him Lord. Now, unless you also imitate him in his love and his humility and his service, you're essentially taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. You're saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I put the name of Christ on me. I worship God. Jesus is my Lord. He is my teacher. And then you avoid this kind of humble service 
towards other people. You avoid it like the plague. Well, when you say you're a Christian, you worship God, and Jesus is your Lord, you're taking his name in vain. Because you're not following in his footsteps. You're not behaving like he's your servant. If he's your teacher, you're supposed to learn the things that he's saying, and you're not acting like you're interested in learning at all. He says, this is what you need to do. Wash one another's feet. Look at verse 14 again. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Wash each other's feet. Now, does this mean uh, we do literal foot washing? Sure. Go ask someone if you can wash their feet. I dare you. Uh, okay, so that's, that's a fine thing to do, but don't stop there. Don't take it so literally that you're no longer taking it seriously. Extreme humility and service goes far beyond a ritualistic washing of feet. I think foot washing is fantastic. It's an eye-opening experience. Uh, it can be. Um, but there's many other, you know, humble, expensive, sacrificial acts of service that you can do for the people around you. Because that's what Jesus would do. We, he, he would behave like this. Proverbs speaks of the... Um, the intensity with which you free yourself from debt, financial debt, okay, like a gazelle. You you just get out of there. It says, oh man, you signed surety for someone. You're you're in debt for their. Oh man, you got to get out of that fast, okay, like a bird from the fowler. You got to leave. Well, Romans says that we says to owe no one anything but love. He talks about love like it's a debt that you have to pay with the intensity that Proverbs talks about financial burdens with. The burden to love one another in this way should be heavy on you. You pursue opportunities to, to wash feet, to love people with extreme humility, to follow the way of the cross in extreme self-denial. Imitate Jesus. Take the last place. Don't take the best seats. Take the worst. Take last place. Give your best to the worst, expecting nothing in return. Now, I don't think any of us would mind, at this point, being like Mary of Bethany, washing Jesus' feet, right? We should do that. That's what we should do. When we, we see that as this beautiful act of worship and be like, oh yeah, Jesus, you know, my affection, my devotion poured out on the feet of Jesus. Yes, please. Uh, I want to do that. But that's not the worship he demands of his disciples. He doesn't sit there and say, remember that lady that you guys all made fun of? Well, well, her story is going to be preached wherever the gospel is mentioned. And you know what? If you want to be anything like her, get in line and wash my feet. He had a right. He could have, and they would have done it. But that is not what Jesus did. That's not the worship that he demands. What is the worship that Jesus demands of you? To serve others. Wash feet. This is how we worship God. By, by loving each other and even loving our enemies in extreme, expensive, sacrificial, self-denying acts of service. Turn over to Matthew 25. This is a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, but it drives this point home very clearly. In, in Matthew 25, verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, 
Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from, his, from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or, I already did that. When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These things are worth understanding. And if you go back to John, you see there's, there's a blessing in this if you understand and do the things you're learning. In John 13, in verse 16 and 17, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus humbled himself, and while we must accept his service to us, he's the one that cleans you. He offers everything to you, not the other way around. He comes to you in humility, and we have to say, this doesn't make sense, but I have to accept it. <laughs> and and we, we must accept his cleansing of us, however humbling, but we cannot try to take a position above our master. He became a servant, so that means we must follow him there. We must follow him to the floor where the feet are. And that means, that means obedience. It means seeing what Jesus does and then doing it and hearing what he says and then following it. You know, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, there's a lot more words to parse in this section. You know, John is, is deep. We could spend, a, you know, several more weeks in this passage, for sure, at least. Um, there's a lot more history, there's a lot more theology, but this passage can't be about that. Primarily, this passage cannot be about just dividing words and, and definitions. It must ultimately be about obedience. You know the story that Jesus tells at the end of at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after describing this new kingdom of which he is king, and, and Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, there's a story, you're familiar with it. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, 
I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Building your house on the rock. Um, looking forward to hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. These are built on obedience. And Jesus displayed an extreme humility, an extreme service, and then says to his disciples that belong to him, of which you are one. And he says, live like this. Do this. Love each other. Serve each other. So and the application is simple. Uh, if you need it, you know, even more clearly, I'll give it to you now. This is your homework. This is what you need to do with this passage. You receive the work that Christ has done for you. You do not resist it. You do not say, I can do better. I can contribute. My good works are worth something. No. You say, I am nothing but dirty feet, and I need Jesus to cleanse me. Accept that free gift. But then, you have to recognize as a Christian that you have been commissioned to wash feet. And that you don't wait for the foot to show up right before you when you just happen to have a bowl of warm water. That's not the way that works. This is a proactive thing. You go out and seek the needs. You seek out needs. You seek out the dirty feet. And you make yourself a servant to the lowest. You, Jesus loved those who were his own to the uttermost. Um, the founder of the Salvation Army was uh, used to saying uh, he loved us from the guttermost to the uttermost. And it isn't in the guttermost where he calls us to the lowest place. Find the lowest place. Find the low act of service and become a servant. And what you'll find there is that Jesus is still washing feet. You'll find an intimacy with the Lord in service because He is still serving people in such a humble way, even from His throne. He is still blessing those who are His. He's blessing the lowest. He's still seeking lost sheep. And you'll, you'll be with Him as you go on this journey. So let's, let's pray. I've gone on a little long. So, Jesus, I, just, I ask that this would be so. I ask that your church would be a foot-washing church. I pray that, that your children... Um, would follow you in this way, follow you in this action, follow you in this extreme self-denial in serving others, of emptying ourselves. We don't have the glory that you have to, to be emptied from. We have a, a, a smaller distance to go. We're already so low, but God, we're filled with this false pride, this, this um, or false humility, this proud humility, and, and we reject that and repent of it, Lord, and ask that we would be with you, that we would follow you, that we'd be near to you in these actions, in these, these humble acts of service, Lord. God bless your church with a spirit of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.